Yusra Mardini is on a dinghy way out in the Aegean and it's sinking. Her sister, Sarah, is already overboard, desperately clinging on. She looks at Yusra, warning her not to follow. I lose consciousness really fast if I am in a really crazy situation or I have lots of pressure on my brain. Like, I always lose consciousness really, really fast. But Yuzra didn't care. She flung herself into the ocean and took hold of a thin piece of rope dangling from the side of the boat. We tried to stabilize the boat. We tried to to swim, uh, to, to make it move. And still... The dinghy fought against her. She looked at the other people on that raft. Twenty refugees also seeking safety. I just was thinking that that I just want to get on the island and, and I, I don't want anyone to die. I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is How to Be Superhuman. In this episode, we're talking to a modern-day hero. Yusra Mardini is a young swimmer growing up in Damascus, idolising the great Michael Phelps. She dreamt one day of representing her country, Syria, at the Olympics. But when she was a teenager, a brutal civil war destroyed her home, and her way of life. In 2015, when she was training in the pool, an RPG hit the roof and threw debris into the water. And that was the final straw. Yusra and her sister, Sarah, took the decision to leave their mother in search of peace. But it was a decision they didn't take lightly. And it was a decision that nearly cost Yusra her life on that fateful day aboard that sinking boat. My father's family is was full of swimmers, like my uncles and him. So I was like at the pool always, even if not training, I was with my father. I was like, since I was like, Basically, still one year old. Then the people became my family as well because I sometimes spent more time in the pool than actually home. I started like with the Olympic idea when I was actually, we can say, nine years old because I I was watching like Michael Phelps and how he got his way and then winning a gold after gold. So you had two supermen providing the inspiration. Obviously, Michael Phelps is, you know, an unbelievable, he's a phenomenon. Uh, But we all know that deep down, what we really want to do is sort of, you know, make your family happy. And, you know, your your dad must have seen something special in you from an early age. So tell us how, like, he, he, he brought you through from just being someone who liked being in the pool through to being really competitive. When I was really young, uh, actually, I hated the water, to be honest. I ran away from training. 
I was hiding behind my mom <laughs> and I, I, I put an excuse always to go to the bathroom. I stayed there like probably 15 minutes just standing there. But then slowly I realized that actually I am really good at it. And then I started like competing with really older girls and started to like be better than them. People started talking and like how about how young I was and how good I was. I think when I was 10, I went to my first Arab championship and people were like really surprised that I was really, really young and I was competing there. So I think this is how everything started and I realized that actually this can be my career. At some point during like your, you know, your the infancy of your career, you you left swimming for a while. Sort of, why was that? At one point, like the war started. After like two or three years of the war, my father left because he was training in Jordan, and because like it's a better opportunity, it's better money, and all of that. After he left, I didn't find like peace with the coach I was training with, and I had a competition in Russia. So I backed my one suitcase and I went with it to the, to this competition. When I came back, they told me we can never, ever go back to our home. This is the only bag I had. So this was one point where I realized actually war is happening and, and it's destroying lives. At that point, I, I realized I've lost really everything. It was really hard. Also three women alone living in a war and then... Yeah, to, to provide everything that we needed as well. And uh, then I decided I'm going to leave swimming because I felt I'm not going anywhere. Only when I left swimming, I actually realized how important it was to me. I saw my Syrian team like win a bronze medal in the relay in the World Cup. And then I started crying. I was like, Mom, I could have been there. Like, like, why did I leave? Blah, blah, blah. And then uh, she was like, you know what? If you want to go back, just call your father. And if, if he's okay with it, I am okay with it. So back she went to that same pool. The same pool where she'd already spent most of her life training. So the pool was uh, basically an Olympic pool. It was 50 meters. And the surrounding of the pool, it was all glass. We were swimming, we were training, and then there was an RPJ that hit the pool. And then the roof was like destroyed. And then we were running outside to my mom. And then the, the, the glass actually exploded on us. I got to the car and I couldn't talk anymore. And then my mom was asking me, are you okay, are you okay? And I couldn't answer. And then she was going crazy. She thought I'm hurt, but I couldn't. I, I was in shock. I couldn't say anything. So at this point, we realized that we are really not safe. And so you decided that you needed to just get out somehow, but it's it's not easy. You know, it's not it's not, not just a case of getting on a plane. So how, how did you decide you were going to leave and how did you go about organising it? Um, so it was that summer, especially like and the summer before, there was lots of teenagers leaving the country 
And we heard a lot about people getting in a boat and uh, uh, we heard a lot about people drowning, about uh, people getting killed on the way um, to Europe or something like that. Me and my sister, we thought about it and we said, you know what, we are in danger every day. Like my mom, she she got so sick in her head that she couldn't even know if, if we're going to go back to her or not if we go out. So she started like telling us not to go out, not to see anyone, not to do anything. And we are we are teenager, you know, we will not just stay home and pray to God just not to get killed. We wanted to do our normal life. And we started saying like the teenagers in Syria started telling their parents, you know what, mom, if anything going to happen to me, it's going to happen anywhere, even in my flat. So maybe you have to let go. My father said that we, if we find someone he can trust, then we can travel. So actually we found his cousin. And then we told my father he was surprised, but like he had to say yes. My mom was basically crying the whole week till we left. It was really, really fast. We arranged everything really quickly. And we traveled in a week after we decided to. So how did you actually leave Syria? Like sort of because you were heading for, to Greece. So how, how did you get to there? Yeah, so as a Syrian, you can at least travel to Lebanon and Turkey without a visa. I mean, it was like that. Now you need a visa, actually, to, to Turkey. So we traveled with the plane to Beirut. And then from Beirut to Turkey, also Istanbul with the plane. And then the journey really started from uh, from Istanbul, from Izmir, actually. And so when you, when you got there, like was, you, was your cousin taking you all the way to Greece? Yeah, they were with us. And then the thing is that uh, you find smugglers uh, to take you because it's impossible for you to go on your own. And those smugglers, they, they arrange the boats, they arrange the buses to take you to the shore and all of this. And uh, you basically have to pay them 1,500 euros. I mean, if you, if you die or not, you're going to pay the money. They yeah. don't care about that. So we stayed actually a whole week in Turkey trying to to find smugglers. And then like afterwards, they took us to an island. And this island was like, yeah, when you go down to the island, you see like thousands of people waiting. After that, like we stayed four days in, a, in an empty island. Yeah, there was no bathroom, obviously no food, no water. Uh, you don't have any tent to sleep in. You don't have any sleeping bags. So you basically just sleep on the floor. And even like, imagine like me and my sister, we had to have a knife with us the whole time so we can protect ourselves. So after four days waiting, the smugglers said it was time to leave. Only problem was the boat that was going to take them to safety. You know this like rubber boat that you take uh, on the lake to do barbecue or something like that? It is this boat. But there was no choice. There was no other boat, and it was now or never. The first time we tried to get on the boat, actually, it was in the morning. And it was sunny, and it, it was okay, the water was very normal. But then, and, this, and the second time when we actually went on the boat, it was at 7.30 p.m. And this time, specifically, there's lots of wind, and it's cold. The conditions were awful. And then when we got on the boat, the water started to get in after basically 15-20 minutes. Disaster. The boat was sinking. 
it was incredible because we started praying all of us together and we started to you know to 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 help each other more than panicking which which was like we were really lucky that uh, no one did anything crazy you know on the boat also because it could it could have all flipped and then from nowhere a man gets up and jumps into the water The, the first person to jump into the water actually was a friend of my father. He was also with us. And he jumped for like two minutes and then he got on the boat. He told us that four people have to go in the water, that we have to throw everything, everything we have basically out of the, the boat. What little they had. But still, it wasn't enough. And after that, like my sister jumped to the to the water and then I jumped from the other side. And then two other guys jumped from the back. What were you thinking at this point? Because, like, were you thinking that you, you, you know, you, you're an excellent swimmer, as as is your sister Sarah as well? Were you thinking that you should be the first in the water? Like, because I don't know if I'd be brave enough to be honest. I we we thought so. I mean, when my sister went to the water, uh, she didn't want me to go to the water, so I went from the other side. I mean, it was a terrible memory, but it was it is funny for me now to realize that even there we were fighting because she was like, no, go up to the boat. Because for me, I um, I lose consciousness really fast if I am in a really crazy situation or I have lots of pressure on my brain. Like I always lose consciousness really, really fast. So she was afraid of that. So uh, she she was getting crazy. She was like, no, get out, get, get up. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen and all of that. And I didn't want to go up. I was like, you're a swimmer. I'm a swimmer. I'm staying there. And what I was thinking of, to be honest, I get asked this question a lot and I have no idea, to be honest. I just was thinking that that I just want to get on the island and, and I, I don't want anyone to die. But how did Yusra go about trying to save the other refugees? There is on the boat this rope um, and then we had like uh, one hand on it and then the, the second hand and uh, the two legs we were, we were trying actually to, to swim breaststroke. The current was forcing the boat back towards Turkey. We tried to stabilize the boat, we tried to swim, uh, to, to make it move. One guy from Sudan, he, w- he turned to me and he told me in the water that I, I, I'm so brave and all of that. And I was just like, please, dude, like, shut up. I just want to reach the shore and then tell me whatever you want. She knew she needed to keep everyone calm, keep everyone focused. Her eyes locked with a child on board the sinking raft. I even had to like uh, do like uh, crazy faces with my tongue out because the kid was looking at me the whole time. I had to be funny just not to make him feel that actually we are almost drowning. She kept swimming, kept pulling, kept fighting. We just wanted to cross the the water border. Yeah, because you'd already um, been stopped, hadn't you, by the Turkish exactly. Coast Guard? Yeah. Yeah, because if they find us, they will just either they're gonna destroy our boat or they're gonna bring us back to jail in Turkey. I think everything that happened in my life before helped me and helped my sister because we've been through a lot, to be honest. In Syria, is basically. You have to fight always, even if there is no war. You have to fight for your spot. You have to fight for your education. You have to fight for uh, being a good swimmer. So I think 
how much we did for everything in our lives taught us how to maybe fight one more time and you know to to continue to the island and not give up we just didn't want to be another boat that drowns and I feel like I was also thinking about those people and I always always no matter when I go to the sea or I see any water I I I to be honest think about those people or I think about how much they suffered till they actually died so I I am really lucky to you know have survived me and all this all those people on the boat it's an incredible tale of of dedication and I know you think that sort of you know you you you're at pains to say that you're not unique here and there's many people making incredible journeys but what you did getting in that water was incredible. People panicking on the boat. I, I believe there were people calling for help on the boat. But you know, did anybody answer the call? Uh, actually, yeah, a friend, a friend of us, like uh, we gave him the phone. We said, okay, this is your job, like to call the coast. We called everyone. We sent everyone, like even my parents, everyone uh, a sign because we had this baby tracker on our phones. But this was the only person who had his phone on. So he called the the Greece lifeguards. And then, uh, yeah, they he was like trying in English. He thought like they won't answer in Arabic and all of that. And then, you know, they, they answered him and uh, they answered in Arabic and they told him to turn and go back. Even knowing that we are saying we are drowning, the boat is drowning, we are dying. Well, you you were on the verge of exhaustion, you know. So how were you keeping going in the water? Like, did you feel? Did you think I'm going to die in the water here? You know, I think I never ever like expected that I can continue something such a trip or such a journey in my whole life. But I think when you're in the situation, this is your only way out. Your body sort of. And your brain gives you this power that you never knew you had to continue because this is actually a matter of survival. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea how we did it, to be honest. But like the only thing I was thinking of is just I want to be on the shore right now. I just I want this to end. Yeah, well, I believe sort of, you know, you, you were giving so much to, to try and help everybody on board. They, they literally had to pull you from the water, you know, uh, as you were getting, as you were approaching the shore. So how did you feel in that last half an hour when you could maybe see land and, you know, you were thinking we could actually make this? It was crazy because, like, I was freezing and uh, there was lots of salt in my body, in my eyes. I couldn't, like, breathe very good. When when we started seeing the island, I was more desperate because I was like, I can see the island, but I can never reach it. I can see the light, but it's never there. So are we really going to survive or not? So I knew that somehow I can survive, but like, and I, I can obviously swim no matter how tired I am. But like, I was thinking about the other people, you know, like it's it's not fair just to let them go and, and continue. Because to be honest, before we did this trip, my sister told me, you know, we are swimmers. No matter what happens, just leave everyone. Leave me and swim. And when it actually, the point came and we were almost drowning, she didn't do that and I didn't do that. We stuck with the people and we helped them. And they also helped us, obviously. I don't know also if I, I, I wouldn't panic if swimming alone 10K in a, in a water, I don't know, in a, to a country, I don't know, and reaching there alone... I think we both helped each other. So, um, yeah, I'm really thankful that we actually survived. Now, that journey was remarkable enough, but that wasn't even the end of your, your journey, was it? 
No, no. Actually, we thought so. But um, the first thing that happened after this crazy trip, there was a restaurant on the shore. We didn't want anything, anything except of water, because like you are an island for four days, no water, no drink. We went to this restaurant and we gave them 500 euros just for water. And then they said no. Wow. They didn't let us buy anything from their restaurant because we are refugees and because they don't deal with refugees. So after that, we had to basically at least walk 40 kilometers just to get to a point where we can even just get water or get food or anything. And then after that, we slept in a church. And so what happened when you finally got to Berlin? I was disappointed. <laughs> I, I thought Europe is way different. I don't know why I was imagining it like a heaven. I don't know, you know. We arrived with 12,000 people and we were put in a camp. I, I wasn't doing anything in my life in the beginning, obviously, because I'm a refugee. I don't know anything. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know the people. I, I didn't know what I want to do in my life right now. But the only thing actually that made it better was swimming. We asked like an Egyptian translator in our camp. We told him, you know what, we're international swimmers. We're good. Uh, we were there, there, there. And uh, he didn't believe us for the first like <laughs> blinking moment because like he said lots of refugees said the same and almost drowned when they did the test. And then when we went to this one club, uh, swimming club, um, they did not believe that we trained in Syria. They didn't know that my father made me watch every world championships, every <laughs> really important competition to watch Michael Phelps' technique and uh, every good swimmer's technique so I can fix mine. Yeah, it was a surprise for them. And then they offered us that we stay actually illegally in their clubhouse. Uh, and then, yeah, my, my swimming career started again. I mean, I'm really thankful for the swimming club. They helped us a lot. They always were there for us. Uh, also, this coach uh, had the idea, why don't we ask the International Olympic Committee? Because they, have, uh, they had a project for refugees and so on. Uh, there was a scholarship. And actually, I was included in the scholarship. After like, I don't know, two, three months, the uh, IOC president, Thomas Bach, announced that there will be the first ever refugee Olympic team in Rio. And then like there was this uh, crazy announcement that there will be a Syrian swimmer who lives in Germany. At this point, the media got crazy. Like we had 300 emails in one day because they thought the swimmer is me. 50% I knew it was me, but I was like, no, that's, that's impossible. <laughs> I just came, like, I was like, no, no, what? No, I, wait. Uh, I was like, how am I going to be competing if, if I just did a crazy journey and I, I've been swimming, I've been back to swimming three months ago, like, I'm not even ready. I got actually nominated for the Olympic Games and, uh, and the first ever refugee Olympic team. And I refused it in the beginning, to be honest, because um, I felt like I didn't deserve my place. Everyone around me actually reminded me that I worked so hard and that my father always told me if I had the opportunity that a world champion had, I would have been one. 
So this always motivated me and, you know, uh, reminded me that that's true. I wasn't actually provided with everyone, everything that a world champion was provided, you know. The support that the people and everyone around you gives you as an athlete here in Europe, it's not like that in Syria. They wanted me to leave swimming. They wanted me to, to get married and sit home. <laughs> They didn't want me even to dream. They didn't even realize that I had a dream or a passion. They thought I'm going to the pool because I wanted to meet new guys. Imagine. But Yusra had a dream. She was about to live it. In 2016, she got on a plane to Rio, to the Olympics, as a member of the first ever refugee team to compete there. The, the greatest moment of, of all, it was uh, two moments. The, the first one, it was when we entered the stadium. This moment, I felt that we really earned the respect of everyone in that stadium. And I, I felt that it wasn't, you know, a pity. It was that really we inspired those people and we actually did something in our lives. So then exactly I realized that actually why shouldn't, why can't I just be, you know, proud of who I am, proud of being a refugee and help those people who thought the, the same way I thought, that I am nobody in the beginning. And I was like, why don't I, you know, change the people's perceptions and even normal people of, of who a refugee is? Because we are still normal and we still dream. You were training, you were, you were at the Olympics, you said you had the respect of everyone, you had my respect. I remember watching uh, that, that entrance into the stadium and I'm not afraid to admit that I had a little bit of a cry. So how did you go about making sure... You wanted to not just have the respect of uh, people from how you got there so far, but what was your preparation for the for why you were really there? And that was to race and race hard. My race was uh, the first race, like the, in the first day, actually, directly after the opening ceremony. And um, I was so scared that I, I, I was shaking before my race. And even like the amount of crowd that was there, it, it made me more scared because I was like, I swam like the first 50 of the 100 faster than the second. <laughs> I didn't know how I swam, to be honest. And it, it, was, it was pretty bad. But like, I was crazy. Like, um, I, I never like thought that I would compete in front of such a huge crowd or like at the Olympic Games. So um, it was really incredible. And I realized that actually we are capable of... of making lots of uh, dreams come true so um at that point i realized that actually this is not the end of the the journey it is the beginning you're now standing on the blocks sort of you know huge crowds sort of you know sort of international athletes around you your mentality at that point you've already said how frightened you were how did it compare to when you were actually on the raft was there any similarity did you tell yourself you know sort of how you could get through this I thought after like the trip, I would never ever be afraid again. But that wasn't true. <laughs> yeah, I thought like um, no matter how huge the race will be, no matter where I'll be, I'll never be afraid. But this, you know, stomach ache before the race, it never changes, to be honest, for me. Like no matter what the race is like or where it is. And at the Olympic Games, I felt like I earned the respect 
and I earned a spot in the Olympic Games to compete and to show people that actually being a refugee does not mean that I have to give up and uh, that I came just to, you know, get money from the government and uh, um, just sit home and do nothing. No, I, I want to dream again. I want to achieve things again. And I want to be someone, actually. What was the final thing you said to yourself just before the gun went off and the race began? I was really scared. I was praying, actually. I mean, this is kind of my ritual. I always pray. I just always remember um, how hard I worked. And that was it. The gun went off and she leapt into the water. Just like when she was on that lifeboat in the ocean. She didn't think. She just jumped. I mean, I can't remember a lot about the race, to be honest, because it's like, it's always a blur, like... You don't think about anything at that moment. You just think about swimming good, and that's it. While you're swimming, you do not think about anything. The crowd was there, willing her on, willing her to succeed. I just heard them. I, I even tried not to look at the crowd because it's going to be more crazy for me if I like looked at the crowd. I was just looking at the pool. I was like, forget about them, forget about them. No one is there. Uh, just focus on your race and uh, it's going to be fine. Well, along with the millions that were wishing you well, somebody was obviously looking after you. You said you saw the, you know, the, the, the signs of the island, sort of Lesbos in front of you uh, on yeah. the boat. Now you're staring ahead, maybe 10, 15 metres to the wall. What did you tell yourself for those last few metres of the race? I told myself, you know, that I overcome like a lot and that I shouldn't give up as always. And you didn't. You won, which is fantastic. You know, like when you when you when you're at the at the side of the pool, sort of. What do you think? That we all see that moment in the Olympics. You've seen Michael Phelps do it yourself. You know, you're you're leaning on those ropes. I've, I'm not a great swimmer, but I'd I'd love to just see what that emotion's like as you're looking around and the crowd is roaring. Just talk us through that. I I wasn't happy actually. I, I was really pissed because I didn't swim a good time. <laughs> I mean, this is the ugly truth, but like uh, we swimmers, to be honest, when you're in the water, I'm, I'm just going to be 100% honest with you. Yeah. You do not care about anything else. You care about the, the race. And then after you're done with the race, you just look at your time. Either you're happy or not. <laughs> in the end, you forget about the whole crowd. You forget about everything. You just think about your race. On next week's episode, I'll be chatting to Jasmine Paris, the ultra-endurance athlete who ran for 83 hours, smashing all records in Britain's most brutal race. I think ultra-running in general is, is in a way a kind of form of mindfulness. And actually you can kind of enter almost a meditative state. Just that action of putting one foot in front of another again and again and again. And that's all you're doing for hours and hours. That's next time on How To Be Superhuman. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. And also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull How To Be Superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats. Or you can even suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. How to be superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House. <laughs>